Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. If Samuel Dyer had uh, succeeded in his assault on Cleveland and Montresor, uh, he would have thrown a monkey wrench not only into the British Army's plans, but also into the Massachusetts Patriots' plans. That's author and historian J.L. Bell discussing his new article on the amazing life of Samuel Dyer. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Small Battle Series, with two new releases, The Battle of Musgrove's Mill, 1782, by John Buchanan, and The Battle of Harlem Heights, 1776, by David Price. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is notable author and historian and Journal of the American Revolution contributor J.L. Bell. And he'll be telling the remarkable story of a man named Samuel Dyer in a two-part series of articles. The first article we'll be discussing tonight will tell a pretty sordid story and a pretty amazing one. We'll save the details for a bit. But it will be followed by a second episode next week, which will continue with the second part of the article series. Also a remarkable story. J.L. Bell's work really goes to underscore the complexity of the American Revolution, the uh, the really amazing stories and consequential lives of some people that we're really not as familiar with. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with J.L. Bell. John Bell, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Brady. Good to be here. John, you've been on the show before. Remind us about your background. Uh, I grew up in... Uh, Middlesex County, Massachusetts, uh, as in every Middlesex village and farm in Paul Revere's Ride. I grew up during the Bicentennial, and that sort of imprinted me on revolutionary history, although I didn't know it until I had gone through a first career in publishing and then uh, started to research uh, the re- this region's revolutionary history, um, oh, about 25 years ago by now. Uh, gradually it built up. Uh, I started my website, boston1775.net, in 2006, and that led to a lot more visibility, uh, to my uh, pleased surprise. And uh, eventually I was uh, one of the people writing for Todd Anderlich's uh, Reporting the Revolutionary War, and uh, when he founded the Journal of the American Revolution, I uh, started contributing there, and eventually my book, The Road to Concord, how four stolen cannon ignited the Revolutionary War became one of the first books published by the Journal of the American Revolution. So I'm uh, very pleased uh, with this community of scholars. John, what first drew your interest into this topic? Uh, because it was too long for one part, I thought. Uh, this this article uh, had its roots. Uh, I, I really concentrate on the beginning of the uh, Revolutionary War, the events that led to from a political debate mostly centered in New England, mostly about taxes, to an actual shooting war. And uh, this event 
in October 1774 happened right in the middle of that transition, and in fact could have sped up that transition, i.e. could have started a war a bit earlier. Uh, it was It's tied into things like the Boston Tea Party, the Massachusetts Government Act, uh, the other uh, events of that time, but not closely tied in enough to fit into my book. I originally wrote a whole chapter on this event, uh, the return of Samuel Dyer, the sailor, to Boston uh, in The Road to Concord, and then uh, looked at it with the publisher and thought, books should be shorter, and this is not directly tied into the story of the four stolen cannon. It was just another thing happening at exactly the same time that exacerbated the situation, raised the tensions, but it was not uh, part of that story. So I put that uh, that chapter aside. And then coming back to it after many years, uh, having all that research, uh, having found uh, more new things and having looked for uh, more stuff and not found it, which is often just as significant, uh, I thought, hmm, this is something that could be a long read, possibly a too long a read for the Journal of the American Revolution, or there is this natural break in the middle where we get a different perspective on these events. And uh, with uh, editor Don Haggis' uh, uh, cooperation, we decided to do it as two separate articles. Who was Samuel Dyer? Could we talk about his early life? We know very little about Samuel Dyer because he was a sailor. And uh, commercial sailors of the time are among the least documented white men we can find because they were not, they were transient. Uh, they usually did not own property. They usually did not have a great deal of wealth. They did not often leave uh, wills unless they were um, uh, very successful. They did not uh, join churches, usually. Um, they uh, could show up, theoretically, in all sorts of different ports, but only for a short time. Um, we know about Samuel Dyer. A, his name Samuel Dyer. Now, if it were a more, less common name, that would be better. But in fact, there are several people named Samuel Dyer, uh, more prominent than he, in New England at the time. So it was, uh, I kept coming across his name spelled different ways and then looking at it more closely said, no, this man can't be the one. He's, he was in town at this time. He was uh, living somewhere else. Um, so... Uh, what we really only know about Samuel Dyer is that supposedly in about 1772-73, he helped out Dr. Thomas Young, who was one of the radical leaders in Boston, during some sort of confrontation on the street. Young writes about this later, and uh, that's the very the earliest uh, incident that involving that involves Samuel Dyer that we have any uh, witness testimony about. Uh, but what Samuel Dyer really came to uh, the fore, he first showed up in American newspapers in the uh, late fall, uh, October 1774, when he arrived uh, from London on a ship to Newport, Rhode Island. And he came bearing this story of having been kidnapped. Why was Dyer apprehended? What was he accused of? Well, he tells the Newport Whigs, the, the, the people who are uh, organizing resistance against the Crown in uh, that part of, in Rhode Island. I was going to say that part of Rhode Island, but Rhode Island is very small, so there's really only one part. So, yeah, uh, so the Newport Whigs uh, listen to his story, which is that he was uh, kidnapped, uh, detained, captured, imprisoned, whatever you want to call it, by 
the 47th Regiment in Boston, uh, kept in chains, interrogated about who carried out the Tea Party, and then shipped over to London, interrogated more in London by people he identifies as Lord North, the Prime Minister, Lord Dartmouth, the Secretary of State, and Lord Sandwich, the head of the Admiralty, uh, and then let go. He went to London and spoke with a couple of the uh, the uh, officials there. The, he uh, reportedly spoke with the Lord High Mayor and the Royal Sheriffs. Both of the sheriffs were, interestingly, uh, American by birth and sympathetic to the American resistance. Uh, Stephen Sayer and uh, and Arthur Lee, who's oh, sorry, William Lee, who's uh, was a brother of Richard Henry Lee, and Lee sent a wrote a uh, letter and sent it back with Samuel Dyer to America. Because the port of Boston was closed at the time under the Boston Port Bill, Samuel Dyer could not sail directly into Boston. Instead, he got on the ship to Newport. In Newport, the Whigs listened to his story, put it, put it in the paper. This is where the first time he appears in the newspapers. And they got a, uh, collected a little bit more money to send him up to Boston. And he was supposed to be this uh, witness testify and victim testifying about British tyranny, about how he had been uh, unconstitutionally captured off the street and uh, shipped across to America, and which was uh, shipped across to Britain, which was just what uh, the Whigs were warning about under things like the um, the Administration of Justice Act or uh, the inquiry into the um, uh, into the gas bay burning. The Whigs were very sensitive to the idea that the Crown would try to take men out of the jurisdiction, uh, a sympathetic jurisdiction in America, and ship them to Britain for trial, uh, where they could not get a fair trial. And here was a man who they believed, by what he was saying, uh, had undergone exactly that sort of treatment. John, how would you summarize his story uh, that garnered really so much attention in its time? Um. Well, that's the question, because uh, everybody had to rely on what Samuel Dyer himself was was uh, telling them uh, in America. And uh, there was some thought that perhaps uh, there had been a newspaper report that he had disappeared in Boston and had drowned. Uh, in fact, uh, the, the Reverend Dr. Ezra Stiles in Newport believed he, he remembered that, but in fact there is no such report in the newspapers. Uh, that was just wishful thinking. But they were looking for clues to confirm his story, and they couldn't really find it. His story is about being arrested, uh, being interrogated at the highest levels of the British government, all about the Tea Party. And he insisted that he gave no useful information and uh he accused one officer in particular, Lieutenant Colonel George Madison of the 47th Regiment of, uh, sorry, of the 4th Regiment of um, uh, accusing, quote-unquote, King Hancock of uh, leading the Tea Party. And so this story was uh, very, um, it, it really ignited the anger of the Whigs in Newport and in Boston because it seemed to confirm their worst fears about what the Crown government was doing and the idea that the uh, the British army, uh, the British uh, royal officials were actually trying to uh, pin the criminality of the Boston Tea Party on John Hancock. Talk about the letter that he was meant to deliver to John Hancock. 
one of the uh, sheriffs in London had sent Samuel Dyer back to America with this letter for Samuel Adams and John Hancock. Now, when he got to Newport, Dr. Thomas Young, who had himself uh, within a few, uh, with only a few weeks uh, of leaving Boston, uh, he, he had been scared out by the British Army himself. Um, he knew uh, that Samuel Adams had gone to Philadelphia for the First Continental Congress, so he was farther away. But John Hancock was still back in Massachusetts. And in fact, just around that time, John Hancock was chosen to be the president of the Massachusetts Provincial Congress, which was sort of the shadow government in the countryside opposed to General Thomas Gage as royal governor. And so, uh, he, uh, so Samuel Dyer, they said, oh, you must take this letter from the uh, sympathetic officials in London and take it to John Hancock. You'll find him in Concord, where the Massachusetts Provincial Congress is meeting, or maybe in Boston. Uh, he was also going, uh, Dyer was also going to Boston to um, collect testimony, collect evidence about what had been done to him so that he could sue the pants off whoever had uh, kidnapped him. That was the plan. Um, it, we know about this letter. I don't think the letter survives, but uh, Dr. Thomas Young, that uh, uh, radical activist, he thought it was all right for him to open this sealed letter from London, look inside it, and then uh, send it, seal it back up and send it on to Hancock and tell Adams what it was in it, because he was such a, uh, a, a dedicated colleague to these leaders. And indeed, he, he had been you know, one of the top uh, four to six uh, radicals in Boston before he left. Um, so it is from uh, Dr. Thomas Young's letter that we know about uh, this message that uh, Dyer was bringing to the American Whigs, talking about uh, sort of giving bona fides, vouching for this story that he had told from the perspective of the London officials. So the next step was uh, Samuel Dyer going up to Boston to try to talk with John Hancock to deliver his letters and to get evidence for this lawsuit. How did he come to draw pistols on two British officers? Well, one of the problems for Samuel Dyer is that the main, or one of the main strategies of the Massachusetts Whigs at this point was to close down the courts, to refuse to allow the courts to open under the Massachusetts Government Act. And out in the countryside, that meant you know, hundreds of men massing around the court buildings uh, in their militia units, not with guns, but looking very threatening, and uh, demanding that the justices not hold sessions. In Boston, uh, there were lots of uh, British soldiers there, so that tactic was not possible, but uh, nobody was cooperating with the justice system, so there was no way to file a lawsuit. So uh, that was one thing that got in the way of Samuel Dyer's plan. The other thing is perhaps you know, he may not have, been a, have a, uh, had great impulse control, uh, because it, on a, the Tuesday after he arrived in Boston, he went up to two British officers on the street in the South End. Uh, these officers were the lieutenant colonel in charge of the artillery, all the, the highest-ranking artillery officer in North America at the time, Samuel Cleveland, and the highest-ranking engineer in America at the time, John Montresor. He seems to have asked them, were they Lieutenant Colonel Madison, the man he had accused of kidnapping him, or possibly asked whether uh, they could lead him to Madison. Uh, but in any case, before they could really answer, he 
grabbed uh, Cleveland's sword and started swiping around with it and then pulled out uh, pistols and started uh, 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 shot his guns at these men. The pistols were not loaded properly. They did not go off. He threw the pistols away, uh, still holding uh, Samuel uh, Cleveland's sword with some of Samuel Cleveland's blood on it, went rushing off down the street and out through the gates of Boston, leaving these two middle-aged British officers uh, somewhat in shock, because even though they had thought um, that, you know, the Boston radicals were capable of anything. This they had not really expected. This was a h- harsher attack, a more direct, violent attack than uh, they had ever experienced before. Uh, in fact, this is the first time anyone uh, in Boston had shot a gun at uh, British Army uh, personnel or uh, royal officials in the 10 years of conflict, not during the Stamp Act riots, not during the Boston Massacre, not during the tea uh, conflict. Had anyone actually used firearms uh, against a uh, servant of the crown? And Samuel Dyer was the first man to do so. John, could you talk about the aftermath? Uh, What happened is that Samuel Dyer went rushing through the gates of Boston, ran uh, or or walked a long way uh, across the Charles River into Cambridge, where the Massachusetts Provincial Congress was meeting, with John Hancock presiding. And he reportedly burst into the chamber where they were meeting, still waving this bloody sword, and claiming that this was, uh, he had seized, he had captured one of the swords they had sent to enslave America. And they listened to him. And of course, these were the the, uh, most uh, uh, rebellious politicians in Massachusetts at the time meeting in uh, in defiance of the Massachusetts Government Act, and they listened to this man, and they thought, this man is crazy. And so instead of validating Samuel Dyer and saying, uh, and believe, continuing to believe that he had been a victim of the uh, British Army and British government oppression, they decided that to arrest him and send him back into Boston the next day under guard to go into the Boston jail. And thus it became the consensus of everybody in Massachusetts, or at least almost everybody, that Samuel Dyer was crazy, that he, that, that whatever had happened to him, uh, he could not be relied on uh, as a witness. He, uh, people stopped believing in his story of having been kidnapped uh, and uh, having talked with high British officials, and he remained in the Boston jail f- for the next several months, uh, even as the uh, war heated up and began. So that's one reason why we don't remember Samuel Dyer much at all. He's not remembered along the same lines as uh, um, other events in this crucial period from September 1774 to April 1775, uh, because it seemed like a dead end. It seemed like, oh, is just a crazy person doing something that made no sense. It's not really connected to this conflict. And uh, perhaps people may even have uh, felt relief that uh, he uh, had been stopped before he did real harm. John, how was this story viewed in British and Patriot circles? It's interesting to look at the newspaper coverage in Boston after Samuel Dyer uh, carried out this assault on the British officers. The newspapers that were most uh, supportive of the Patriots had as little as possible to say about this whole event, and they stated that uh, Dyer was uh, thought to be insane. So they were making as little as possible about it. 
the newspaper that was the most supportive of the royal government, uh, which at this time was the Boston Postboy, it had a long, detailed description of how this man had attacked these officers and run off. And so that is a very good source uh, historically, but it also demonstrates that the the uh, loyalists and the crown government saw this as much more significant or were trying to make it much more significant than the patriots did. Uh, and in fact, uh, although the patriots were clearly, when, they, when the Massachusetts Provincial uh, Congress sent Dyer back to Boston to be locked up, they were clearly trying to disassociate themselves with him from uh, declaring that he was not really one of theirs. Uh, you can we can see in the letters of British officers and officials that they did see him as a symptomatic of the overall madness of the uh, of the uh, resistance to the crown. That and they were quite willing to believe that he had in fact been encouraged by the Whigs in London, in Newport, and in Massachusetts. Uh, to make this attack. They were not buying it that he was merely crazy and had nothing to do with the respectable Whigs. They felt that he was symptomatic of the whole problem affecting all of Massachusetts. How does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better? Well, the one takeaway from this article is that uh, the the war, what we call, what we, our revolutionary war, could have started very differently. What if Samuel Dyer's pistols had not misfired and he had actually assassinated one or two high-ranking British officers in Boston? What if he was then discovered to have been carrying around a letter from a uh, the sheriff of London to the head of the Massachusetts Provincial Congress endorsing him? That would look like a transatlantic Whig conspiracy against the servants of the king and an attack on uh, an assassination attack. That's a very different story from the story that the American patriots were able to tell after the Battle of Lexington and Concord that you know we were uh, peaceful uh, farmers who uh, whose uh, homes whose uh, communities, rather, were invaded by hundreds of redcoats. And it would have been much harder to make the case to ordinary people, to people in other colonies, to people in Britain, that the American cause was just if the very first casualties of this conflict were two men shot suddenly in the streets by an assassin. That sort of counterfactual, a what if, uh, shows how uh, on a razor's edge some of these events could be. There are other ways during that those months leading up to the Battle of Lexington and Concord where the war could have started differently and had a different narrative behind it. And uh, so, uh, if if for instance, if the Revolutionary War had started more like World War One started with an assassination on the street. Uh, probably it would have played out differently as well. Uh, the Massachusetts Patriots knew that they weren't yet ready uh, for war. They hadn't collected enough weapons. They hadn't collected, uh, trained enough. And But most important, they didn't have the right uh, uh, public um, understanding and agreement that war was necessary. And the uh, if Samuel Dyer had uh, succeeded in his assault on Cleveland and Montresor, 
uh, he would have thrown a monkey, monkey wrench not only into the British Army's plans, but also into the Massachusetts Patriots' plans. John Bell, thanks again. See you next week. Sounds good, Brady. Take care. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.